Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, we discuss the new four part HBO documentary series, The Case Against Adnan Syed. It explores the 1999 Baltimore murder of Heyman Lee, made famous by the podcast Serial. 18-year-old Heyman Lee disappeared on January 13th after leaving Woodlawn High School. On February 9th, police found her half-buried body in Baltimore's Leakin Park. She had been strangled. Key details they had withheld as they sought out a suspect. They now have one in custody. The police suggest the suspect had a motive in the form of a fatal attraction to his victim. The subject is identified as Adnan Musad Syed, 17, and a former football player who is described as an A student, friendly to everyone. Heyman Lee's former boyfriend Adnan Syed was convicted in the case. He went to prison in 2000 and remains there while his case is on appeal. Sarah Koenig's podcast, Serial, explored the case and found multiple mysteries and doubts about Adnan's guilt. The key witness against Adnan was his friend Jay Wilds, who says he helped Adnan bury Hay's body. But Jay's testimony was full of inconsistencies. There were other potential suspects who were never thoroughly investigated by police, including Hay's newer boyfriend, Don, and the man who found her body, Alonzo Sellers. Serial turned millions of listeners into armchair detectives, but by its end, there was still no clear answer. Hi, and welcome to the 11th episode of Undisclosed Estate versus Adnan Sayed. Rabia Chowdhury, a friend of Adnan's family and a lawyer, never stopped advocating on his behalf. She created her own podcast, Undisclosed, and wrote a best-selling book, Adnan's Story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial. Now Rabia appears in the HBO series. The series director is Amy Berg, known for investigative documentaries including West of Memphis, An Open Secret, and the Oscar-nominated Deliver Us from Evil. Amy was brought into the project by executive producers Henrietta Conrad and Jemima Khan, who had gained access to Adnan's family. They also hired a team of private investigators to follow unexamined leads. Amy gets on-camera interviews with many people who are close to Hay and Adnan. Hay's French teacher, Hope Schaub, talks about an awkward interaction she had with Adnan after the discovery of Hay's body. I have a clear recollection of going up to Adnan and hugging him and just saying, I'm so sorry, and I wrapped my arms around him. But I got a very just stern, and I don't know if that was a cultural thing. I don't know if I should have hugged him. I don't know if it was something to read into or not, but it wasn't reciprocated back. I think I took it a little personally. For avid listeners to Serial, it's striking to see familiar names and voices now being matched to faces in the HBO series. 
Laura Estrada Sandoval is one of many classmates of Hey and Nadnan who are interviewed. When we got news that they found Hay's body, we asked who found her body, and they said a hiker. And our immediate reaction, I remember with Krista, was saying that, then, it, then, then who's this hiker? I hosted the world premiere of The Case Against Adnan Syed, Episode 1, at New York's IFC Center. Afterwards, I had a conversation with Amy Berg, Rabia Chowdhury, and Laura Estrada Sandoval. In episode one, a striking component is the use of Heyman Lee's diary, given voice by an actress and illustrated by Icelandic animator Sarah Gunnarsdóttir. This book is full of my expression. This may make you angry, happy, mad, or cry. So do enter at your own risk. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live audience, including many of Amy's crew members. I started by asking Amy what motivated her to turn this familiar case into a TV series. Being a filmmaker, I was really interested in seeing the people that were involved in this case, getting to Baltimore and kind of understanding the whole context of the story. Um, it's a visual medium. I think you get so much more out of people's you know, interviews and faces and just, you know, walking into the house of Adnan's family and Rabia and all of his friends. I just, I feel like we we had to start there. Um, I wanted to say something before we got into this whole discussion, though, because part of my goal in episode one was to bring Heyman Lee back to life. And in order to do that, I needed to have a great animations partner who I think, Sarah, are you here tonight? Oh, there. <laughs> oh. Um, Sarah, I had just seen Diary of a Teenage Girl when I got the call from the UK, and Sarah did the animations for that incredible film. And she's been a partner in, in creating the narrative for Hay and bringing her to life. And I just wanted to acknowledge you because you did such a beautiful job. Um, and I also forgot to thank our incredible DPs. A couple of them are here tonight. Wolfgang. Um, Wolfgang, you're here? Yes, I see you, Wolfgang. <laughs> um, and David Hawks is here, and um, Drew Geary, who did all the color, which looks so beautiful. I just wanted to get, give you a quick shout out, because I forgot. Rabia, you've worked with many different journalists uh, around this case. Uh, you've done quite a bit of investigation, your own, uh, in this case. I wonder when someone new comes to this case, like Amy did, you know, what you saw, as what, what your hopes for that was, and what your cautions are when someone new comes to the case. I'll start with the cautions. So the cautions are always that you want, this case has so many layers. There are so many details. There's so many small little pieces of things, like little bits of information that it turns on and can color your perspective one way or the other. So I really wanted whoever came to the case to know it inside and out. Uh, that was my, that's my biggest caution is to really, for people to understand what they're, but also I want to make sure whoever's coming to the case comes to it with the right tools that they have, you know, Amy engaged private investigators, worked with experts, and that was important to me. Um, so you have the right expertise working on it. What was the other question? Oh, my hopes. My hopes were that it would help bring him home. And, um, you know, the more I think about it, as exhilarating and surreal as it is, we've done the biggest podcast in the world, a New York Times bestselling book. I mean, it's been, and now uh, the most, you know, premier platform, you know, this incredible docuseries. Uh, we've given this case everything we can. And I, and I just wonder, if this doesn't work, then then you know, what's left. Uh, so at the end of the day, for his family and friends, it's about bringing him home. 
So, uh, Laura, you were one of Adnan's friends uh, in high school. I wonder if you can just add to some things that were said in the first episode about your your memories of him and 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 uh, you know what you thought of him. I mean, you never you never saw him mad or upset about anything. Like he was so chill. He was happy. Um, even after the breakup, I mean, he was never upset. Like the state tried to paint him. Um, as this jealous boyfriend with this rage, that 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 was an Adnan. Um, he knew that you know this was like a cycle, and you know on to you know the next. Just like any any high school love, he wasn't torn up. I mean, you've never honestly, if it was so shocking because it's like you've never seen anyone mad, and then they're gonna get charged with murder was uh, was surreal. Um, and we were babies. I mean, 17, 18 years old. And even after they found, I mean, just watching, you did an amazing job. <laughs> but even Ms. Shab, you know, and watching, um, I remember when she hugged him in the hallways. And I remember him saying how awkward it was. Like, I mean, it's amazing how much the, the visuals bring back. But, you know, Adnan was, as, as you hear him, his kind, gentle, loving voice, I mean, that's Adnan, right? I think it would also be great for Laura, just while we're talking about your relationships, just you, one of the things that made me very interested in talking to you, you know, in the beginning was that you were also very close with Jay and Jen, and um, maybe you can talk about that relationship a little further. Well, that I'm, comes in episode two. Yeah, I was waiting to see if I saw Jen. Um, I think one of the unique perspectives that I have is that I'm friends with everyone in the case, or I knew everyone. I even played, was telling Robbie, I played, my brother played soccer with Thiru. And the his, prosecutor. The prosecutor, and his sister, Krishanti, was my right wing on the soccer field, who was running for governor. Um, I mean, I was with Jen and Jay and Stephanie and Krista more than I was in my own home. Um, Jen and Jay, I think uh, the main thing I've always tried to communicate to people is that we're all people, you know, we're not characters. We all have lives. And uh, Jen and Jay, especially Jay, he's had a tough life. I mean, I don't know how many people you know at the age of 15, 16, supporting their alcoholic mom and their grandparents. And he's the one that always has to bring the money home. And um, recognizing that, I would take him to work, you know, whatever he needed. Uh, even with Stephanie, you know, I remember when Serial came out, everybody was talking about, how are you gonna loan someone your car? And it was like, I mean, that's like my family up there. Um, Jen, you know, if I wasn't with Jay or Stephanie, I was with Jen all the time. So, um, and they're good people, you know, we're good people, it's just, this changed us forever. Um, Amy, I want to ask about more about what you were trying to do in this first episode, because one thing that is really striking uh, to me is uh, how much of Heyman Lee comes across in this episode. Well, yes. Um, in, in the true crime phenomenon, I think oftentimes the victim gets lost in our kind of interest in the case, and I, I really wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. 
in this story, which is going to be, you know, almost four and a half hours, um, I wanted to make sure we really understood who Hay was as a young woman, um, and just the tragedy of the high school of it all, which is what Laura's, you know, leaning on here. I, I just wanted to kind of build the world in the first episode, um, and because that that's how we get into this case. You have to understand who all these characters, because the rest of the film, um, the rest of the episodes are very investigative and looking at the case um, and our investigation. So this is a unique episode. This is the only one that looks like this. Um, and yeah, that was my goal completely. Uh, Rabia, you say something interesting in this episode when the question of Don uh, comes up, Don uh, Heyman's uh, current boyfriend at the time of her uh, disappearance and death. And when suspicions are being raised about him, you say to the effect that your experience has taught you to be cautious about jumping to conclusions about anyone. And I wonder if you could elaborate on, you know, how you think your involvement with this case has changed the way you think, maybe. I mean, I, I'm an attorney, but I never practiced criminal defense. I've never done this work professionally. So I have learned a lot about how to unpack a, a criminal, you know, prosecution, a murder investigation, how the police operate. Um, and what I've learned is, you know, there are leads and Don would be a lead. But then you have to have evidence to back up the lead. The, the your leads should take you to evidence. They don't take you to evidence. So for me, you know, I always say this: if I if I had the power to reopen the investigation, I would start with Don. I would start with Alonzo Sellers. I would start with other things, and I would see: do those leads take me to the forensics in this case? Do they, you know? But that doesn't mean because, like I said, you know, and in Don's case, what happened was he was arrested, and then the police began talking to the students and everybody after the arrest. So suddenly, everything he did seemed suspicious. Was he crying too much? Did he smile the other day? And that's we, that's just normal human bias and behavior, right? Because we now have this information that we're filtering our opinion through. So uh, what I've learned is that you might have a suspicion, you might have, the, but those are nothing but leads, and those are just, if you don't have the evidence, then that's the end. That's the end of that lead. And when they were asking those questions, they also scared all the kids and told them that they're his fingerprints and DNA. Well, you should talk about that. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, they started after they arrested Ed Daughters, where you saw. Well, I mean, the day that they arrested him, they had grief counselors at the school. Um, I remember the detective. We were in the guidance counselor office. It was me, Aisha, Krista, Debbie, Becky. Um, I don't know who else was there, but uh, I'll never forget. I think it was McGillivary or Ritz. One of uh, we asked them, uh, we and we said, "You have the wrong person, flat out." Um, and I remember the detective saying to me that um, we've had uh, people that have committed the crime and they have the murder weapon in their hand, and they're telling us they didn't do it when there's blood all over them. And we have DNA, they said they had DNA, um, but everything that they said, we're like, but you have the wrong guy, DNA, of course you have DNA. He was in the car, he was her boyfriend. Um, they said that they had more, they had fingerprints and DNA, which I believe they didn't have any DNA, it was like off the map, the roadmap that was in there. Um, but they, that's, it was like after, there was very little, when Hay went missing, I believe at Debbie and Aisha say it, we, and remember we had like four or five days off. Um, 
we thought she was with Dawn. Uh, we didn't even second guess it. No, there was really no searching except for seeing the dogs um, go around the property of the school. But when they when when Adnan got arrested and when that night the next day, um, yeah, there was definitely more security present, more cops asking stuff. I remember when Miss Shab put out that questionnaire, um, and Adnan went to her, and after everything, he was still so polite to her, and he could have gone up there and been like, "Stop," you know, but he was like, "Please, stop," calmly. Like, I mean, I don't know how many people would react that way after having a teacher fill out a questionnaire of your whereabouts and your relationship with your high school girlfriend. So, um, so it was, it was subsequent stuff. And I, you gotta give it to Krista, you know, all those <laughs> memories and, you know, her foresight was, is amazing that she kept everything. Um, you'll see, you see her books, all the, you know, I remember those agenda books. You know, I remember Adnan asking for my agenda book to go use the bathroom at times. And, you know, um, but yeah, you definitely saw more of a police present. And the feeling that they never, even the hiker, we thought it was the hiker. We immediately went to the hiker. Not knowing Alonzo anything. Sellers. Yeah. Because we're like, who's this guy? The streaker. We didn't, I didn't even know he was a streaker until Serial came out. But right away, I knew that I, we said, me and Krista, it was it was that guy. Amy, because uh, we're talking about the police in this case, uh, you interviewed Detective Massey uh, in this film. I wonder if the police department at this point it, uh, is defensive about the case or what it was like to uh, get that interview and, and what you found as as you tried to conduct those kinds of interviews. Well... I can definitely say we called probably about 40 different officers. We could not get anyone to talk to us. We we had every every person who had left the force, even you know right around the case, had no affiliation with the police department, had a code of blue silence. Um, so we felt very fortunate that we had one detective because I remember even in the keepers, they didn't have anyone that went on the record. There is a code of silence in Baltimore um, in the PD, and um, that was frustrating because there were a lot of questions that we had, and there were a lot of things that Massey couldn't remember because he wasn't involved in every aspect of the case. And the same goes for the prosecutor, who wouldn't speak to, we inter we requested an interview like 15 times and he never would speak to us. So it's just, it's difficult. Because you think everyone is, you know, you think that especially somebody like Theroux would be there to seek justice, but it's, they, they you know, they just want to fight him getting a new trial. And there's enough evidence to support a new trial at this point, so. Um, uh, Robbie, uh, uh, you know, we've only seen the first uh, of these four episodes, but I, I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that Anan Syed is still in prison. Um, and uh, so can you kind of bring us up to date on where the case is now? You know, what is the, what is the hope that you and his supporters can cling to now? Well, I mean, as the first episode showed, um, Adnan, after Serial, other, I mean, um, he was granted a, a new hearing, a new post-conviction hearing, and he, uh, his conviction was actually overturned. The state appealed it. We won the next appeal. Again, his conviction was overturned a second time. Uh, ordered a new trial. The state appealed it 
again, and that's where we are now. There was a hearing on the appeal this past November. We're waiting for this court, which is the highest court of Maryland, to make a decision. We do. I anticipate we're going to win for a third time, um, at which point the state has to decide, are we going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is highly unlikely, um, but I don't I don't know. I, I feel like anything's possible at this point. Um, or they're going to have to either give him a trial, which is what they're fighting, or they're going to have to negotiate some kind of release for him. And those are the three options we're looking at um, down the road if we win this appeal. And I do anticipate it. And the decision could come in really uh, any any day now. In the next few months, we're expecting it. Amy, uh, you your team did talk to uh, Don in uh, in this episode. Can you shed a little bit more light on uh, uh, on that experience? I don't know if you were doing that interview or if your investigators were. No, I was up there um, with Luke. Um, well, I guess for me, the strangest thing about Don is that he has not had a job since Lens Crafters, and he, he has a wife and two kids, and he's very sick, um, and there, there's just really not much to go on there. He he didn't want to speak to us um, on the record. He, he debated it with his wife a few times, but then decided against it, um, but there's just a lot of questions that should have been asked at the time again, um, and I don't know what an interview with him today would look like, but it would be great, I think, for this case, just to fill in some of the things that people are holding on to. A lot of people think that he did it. We, I mean, I, I don't, I would, I have a lot of questions for Don, and I just find it strange that he wasn't fingerprinted. There was no written notes about him. There was no formal interview. It just seems like, you know, the basics weren't covered with him. They took no DNA from him at all. Yeah, they didn't even look at Don at all the way that they looked at Adnan. Uh, Rabia, when you look at the kind of menu of of possible alternative suspects in this case, you know, w w where do you concentrate your attention? Well, I mean, look, I mean, the, the like they showed in the episode, um, there were swabs taken from her body, right? Um, there were fibers found on her body. There was hair found on her body that didn't match. Hay didn't match Adnan. Didn't match a J. So I would, but the police also didn't collect any of that evidence. They didn't collect blood samples or hair samples from anybody but Adnan and Jay. So I would go back, first of all, and find all the people that she had any kind of interaction with, all the men in her life at the time, including Don, um, including Alonzo Sellers, uh, and see if anything matches there, right? I mean, like you have forensics, there are, there are I don't know, like over a dozen sets of fingerprints in her car that didn't match anybody. I would think that's a big... <laughs> gaping hole in the investigation. So the investigation was incomplete. It was it was a bad investigation. And uh, I would just try to find the sources of those, of those forensics first. But certainly, all the people that they missed, you have to go back to Dawn, and you have to go to other people that she worked with, even people in her family. Um, you know, should her evidence should have been taken from them as well to compare. Um, all right, we have time for a couple questions uh, from the audience. If you've got one, uh, raise your hand. So the uh, question is, Amy, what was your mindset when you were going into this? Did you have an opinion? And has any of that changed in the course of the time you spent working on this? Okay, well, I definitely um, walked into this cautiously because I wasn't sure. After I listened to the serial, I wasn't sure what the truth was. And my producers, Henriette and Jemima, are here tonight. And we had some serious conversations before I signed on about what if we find out that Adnan did it? You know, what if we find out, you know, anything that is different than, the, than um, <clears throat> the, the current narrative. And as I, over the past three and a half years, I started with the state's case and 
Um, I, I can definitely say that it was an unjust conviction. Um, I, I don't think that they have any evidence that's substantial. And um, the thing that bothered me the most about this case is that nothing that was said by Jay Wilds was ever corroborated in any other way. And so, you know, right now, Adnan... And the case kind of rests on his, yeah, testimony, his testimony that he was an exactly. accomplice in helping to bury yeah, Eamon Lee. Episode two. Um, so, <laughs> but don't not watch it because of that. Um, no, so so I, I, I can't... I can't call him a murderer because there's nothing that that says that he did it. So I am he's innocent until proven guilty as he is right now. That's the current opinion of him. Um, Amy, um, you've worked on other complicated investigation films before. I think of the West Memphis Three um, or Open Secret. You know how how does the investigation in this film compare to those? Um, well. West of Memphis, there was there was DNA evidence that had been tested. Um, so I went into West of Memphis with the knowledge that the wrong people were in prison. So that was a different uh, that investigation um, might have been a little bit easier because of the DNA evidence and because there was this huge gap between the second Paradise Lost and my my film. There was like an eleven year gap, so it wasn't so freshly picked over, I guess, to say, for serial, you know. Um, so people were a little bit more open to talking, I think, in Arkansas. Um, and the state was much more willing to talk. So that just made it easier because when you don't have access to anyone from the state, it, it just, you're stuck with whatever was in the case and trying to interpret it through people that you're talking to. But we had this incredible team of private investigators who were in row two. Um, and I think we, you know, shed light on some really interesting new, you know, developments in this case that bring you much closer to the truth. Um, so it was, but it was challenging. I mean, three and a half years into a story, you're still waking up in the middle of the night, think, well, what if he meant this? Or, you know, that's what happens when you work on one of these kinds of stories. Um, and so, um, yeah, and it's not over. I mean, the film really isn't even over yet. So we'll see what happens. Um. We need to wrap up here, but Robbie, I'd just like to ask you, as the person who's been involved in this uh, so long, you know, what your reactions were to as much as we've seen of, of Amy's series so far on HBO. Um, I got to preview the first three episodes, and I, I mean, I'm simply stunned, and I'm so grateful to Amy and also to, I know I have so many people in this room who've worked on um, this series, because what you've had to do is so difficult. There's so many timelines so many different people, so many bits of information that are relevant. Uh, and I also think one of the most touching things to me was seeing the animation. It is phenomenal. Um, and it just, you know, Heyman's diary is a diary I've read many, many times. But seeing it come to life like that, even for somebody like me who knows this inside and out, uh, has transformed, you know, her as a person, brought her to life for me. Um, I haven't seen the final episode, and I can't wait to see it. Um, I, my only wish, the only thing I wish that could be different was that Adnan was here to see it with us. Um, but hopefully this year he'll come home and he'll get to see it. I want to thank Amy Berg, Rabia Chowdhury, and Laura Estrada Sandoval for joining me. And thanks to the team at HBO Documentaries for making it happen. 
The Case Against Adnan Syed is a four-part series that rolls out weekly starting on March 10th. If you're in New York City, please join us on Tuesday nights for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. You can get more information on our website. This is episode 100 of Pure Nonfiction. I want to thank all our listeners and acknowledge the show's first producer, Michael Scotty Jr., who was instrumental to our launch. Thanks to our second producer, Sarah Modo, who was vital to dozens of episodes. Thanks to our current team, series producer, Anna Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>